0: Hi guys, before we start the show I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate so if you fancy an audiobook subscription service hit them up through our link which is audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories and you get a free month including one free book of your choice. Alternatively you can support us directly, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dark histories and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show Access to our Discord and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I don't think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries. You can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends, and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers. Sigmund Adamski was living a peaceful, unremarkable but happy life in the town of Tingley, just south of Leeds in Yorkshire, England. A Polish immigrant he would moved to England in 1945, settled down, married, worked and was nearing retirement. Police Constable Alan Godfrey was likewise an unassuming man. He worked on the police force in nearby Tob Morden and drove his beat in the towns and villages within the surrounding valley. In 1980, these two men would be tied together by a series of truly strange events, a death that remains unexplained until today, and a case of abduction by creatures with lamp-like heads. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of Dark Histories. I'm your host, Ben, and today, have I got a story for you. It's going to be a lot of chat after, I think, so, as usual, we're just going to jump pretty much straight into it. This is the story of Zygmunt Adamski and Alan Godfrey, A Tale of Two Halves. In 1980, Yorkshire was in the grip of fear perpetrated by Peter Sutcliffe, a man now more infamously known as the Yorkshire Ripper. He had by this point killed nine women and throughout 1980 he would kill four more. The murders were a national sensation and had sparked one of the UK's largest manhunts involving 289 police officers that worked full-time on the case. His murder spree had lasted over five years. The Yorkshire police were suffering savage criticism from all angles and best advice from authorities to the public veered dangerously close to suggesting a curfew. The public had become accustomed to reading gruesome tales of murder in the papers, and as the years ticked by since the discovery of the first victim in 1975, so too the death toll climbed. Rather more unusually, a flurry of lights in the sky had been seen over northern England throughout the late 1970s. Reports came into police station of phantom helicopters, unexplainable lights, and silent aerial phenomena. In the depths of the Cold War, with the Soviet Union to the east and an ongoing battle with the IRA in Ireland to the west, these reports were taken very seriously by the local authorities, who diligently followed up reports, oftentimes chasing satellites through the sky or low circling aircraft flying into Manchester. It was, then, a strange atmosphere that surrounded the valleys and moors of Yorkshire as the dawn broke on a new decade. For most, life was, of course, perfectly normal, but an unsettling undercurrent ran just below the banal normality of the everyday, and with each new strange or gruesome report in the news, it threatened to break the surface. Sigmund Adamski was born in Poland in 1923. Very little is known about his early life besides the fact that, In 1945, aged 22, Adamski immigrated to England, and in 1951, he married Likardia Havalska. The pair seemed to then go on to live a quiet and peaceful life in the town of Tingley, six miles southwest of central Leeds in Yorkshire, England. Adamski had worked in the local coal mine, the Lofthouse Colliery, and by 1980, he was aged 56 and nearing retirement. In fact, he had recently applied for early retirement, as the Lofthouse Colliery was planned for closure in 1981, Adamski felt he could better take care of his wife, who suffered from multiple sclerosis and was wheelchair-bound without the long hours of pit work on his shoulders at the same time. His application was initially rejected, and on top of this, his own health had declined from a heavy smoking habit and a life working in the mine, leaving him in trouble with bronchitis. Though he had been undergoing treatment which appeared to be having positive results, and his health didn't appear to hold too many negative effects over his ability to live a normal life. On June the 6th, 1980, Zygmunt Adamski had more pressing matters to attend rather than considering his rejection for early retirement. In just a few days, he was scheduled to give away his goddaughter at her wedding, and in preparation, he was playing host to two family members from Poland, his cousin and their son. On the morning of June the 6th, Adamski and his cousin went to nearby Wakefield to go shopping, and after their return home, the family had lunch together. At around 3.45pm, he left the home to buy groceries for lunch the following day. As he walked to the local shop, he met his neighbour, and the pair exchanged cursory greetings. He said goodbye, walked off down the street, bought his groceries, and never returned. PC Alan Godfrey was born in 1950, He had been working as a police officer in the town of Todmorden, 30 miles to the west of Tingley, since 1974. At 3.45pm, on the wet, rainy afternoon of the 11th of June, five days after Adamski's disappearance, he received a call on his police radio whilst walking his beat from long-standing friend and colleague, PC Malcolm Hagley. Hagley was responding to a call from Trevor Parker, the son of the owner of a coal yard adjoined to the Todmorden railway station named Tomlin's. Despite being directly next to the station, Tomlin's was an isolated yard, a horseshoe-shaped industrial unit sitting at the end of a long, desolate track. Parker had been readying to load his truck with coal for his afternoon deliveries when he happened across a man lying atop a 12-foot pile of coal surrounded by large wooden sleepers. He said of the discovery, I was loading my truck for the last delivery of the day. The body was just lying there in plain sight. I didn't know if the man was dead or alive. It gave me a terrible fright, so I called the police and ambulance. I didn't want to be out there by myself. I was scared and the body gave me a very eerie feeling. I have no idea how the man got in the yard, but I can tell you one thing for absolute certain. There was no body on that coal pile when I loaded my truck earlier. By 4.10pm both P.C. Hagley and Godfrey arrived at the scene and as Hagley climbed the pile of coal he discovered that the man was dead. He called down to Godfrey to come take a look and offer a second opinion on the manner of the situation. After the precarious climb to the top, Godfrey saw just why Hagley had called him up to take a look. The body was that of Zygmunt Adamski. He was lying face up, described by Godfrey as if He'd just got into bed and was fast asleep. There were some peculiarities, however, most obviously pertaining to Zygmunt's clothing. He was wearing a suit, but underneath his suit jacket, which was misbuttoned, he lacked a shirt and was wearing only a string vest. His trousers were unzipped and his shoes were tied crudely. His watch and wallet were nowhere to be found, but he was clean, displaying no sign of coal dust or dirt on his face. There were no sign of a struggle on both the body nor the stacked coal pile, and the only injuries that Godfrey noted were a series of burn-like marks around Adamski's crown, nape and shoulders that appeared like a chemical burn in several patches which had been treated by a green-yellowy substance. Something about the situation didn't sit right with either policeman. Godfrey said of the scene, It was quite obvious to me and to Malcolm that this guy didn't die where he was found. He appeared to have been dressed after death. It was quite steep. I can't imagine anyone carrying a body up there. Why would they? It was very strange. Two and two were making five. Both officers on the scene confirmed their suspicions with one another that the body did not appear to be the result of a natural death, and so they called for the Criminal Investigations Department to come out and investigate the scene. The CID arrived, photographed the area and the coroner announced life extinct and arranged for Zygmunt Adamski's body to be removed from the yard and taken to Hebden Bridge for autopsy. Alan Edwards, consulting pathologist at Royal Halifax Infirmary, undertook the autopsy and found that Adamski had only had a single day's beard growth and that he had eaten well during the days he had been missing. They had not eaten on the day of his death, which was estimated to have been between 11am and 1pm on the 11th the same day that he was found. The burns appeared to be precise and occurred around two days prior to death, and samples of the green gel-like substance that covered the burn marks were sent to the Home Office Laboratory in Weatherby for chemical analysis. The cause of death was marked as heart failure, though the exact cause was never 100% evident. The only discernible marks on the body at all were a small series of superficial cuts on the palms of both hands both knees and a small cut on the right thigh. The whole thing was beginning to feel very peculiar to all involved. During the days following the discovery of the body, and once the police had identified the victim as Sigmund Adamski through the missing persons records in Wakefield, the investigation and inquest began to turn up more facts about his life, and it was anything if not spectacular in its normality. He was well liked around Tingley, He had no enemies, debts, nor alcohol or gambling problems. His marriage appeared to be a loving and caring relationship, and he was seemingly looking forward to taking part in the wedding in the days following his disappearance. The neighbour who had crossed paths with Adamski on his way to the shops on the day of his disappearance remarked that he had seemed happy, friendly and in high spirits. Close friend of Adamski's, Christopher Zielinski had been drinking with Adamski on the 4th of June, two days before his disappearance, and he told police that he had left to go home early and take care of his wife, though he had been entirely fine within himself. Zelinsky described Adamski's marriage as happy, and added that the idea of his disappearing for five days voluntarily, leaving his wife to fend for herself, was utterly unthinkable. There was only really one black mark on Adamski's history that the investigation found, and that was of the recent issuing of a restraining order taken out upon the husband of his cousin who was currently staying with the Adamskys. There were rumblings of a family feud concerning the coming wedding, and the husband was somewhat put out by Adamski's level of involvement. Regardless, the police were quite happy with the situation, and Alan Godfrey later confirmed that there was never any reason to suspect any members of the family to have been involved. The inquest opened with much puzzlement on behalf of the coroner, James Turnbull, who told the press, I have not ruled out crime. I am not happy. We have not got a lot of answers to the questions that have been asked today. As the investigation stalled, the police appealed to the public through the local press to come forward with any information or witness reports for the days between Adamski's disappearance and the eventual discovery of his body. The headline in the local paper, The Evening Courier, Read simply, 5 lost days, Inquest Appeal in Mystery Death Whilst police waited for possible information from the public, the inquest was adjourned, and if the authorities had been hoping for the facts to become clearer during the postponement of the inquest, they were to be sorely disappointed. Results returned from the lab in Weatherby, which stated that the jail's substance could not be identified. Extensive searching of local hospital records confirmed that no one matching Adamski's appearance had been admitted for any head injuries and it became apparent that Zygmunt Adamski had never been to Todd Morden in his life, nor did he have any friends, family or acquaintances in the town. He simply had no reason to be there at all. Eventually, after no witnesses came forward, the inquest resumed and concluded with an open verdict. Heart failure was accepted as the official cause of death, with poor condition of the lungs a contributing factor. Whilst the coroner, who had not actually visited the scene on the day of the body's discovery, confirmed that Adamski had died where he was found, protestations from both P.C. Godfrey and Hagley fell on deaf ears, as neither men were called to give evidence. Speaking to the press after the inquest, the coroner stated, The question of where he was before he died and what led to his death could not be answered. In my 12,000 cases, this is the most baffling I've ever had. If I was told a UFO took this man up and dropped him on the coal pile, I would only raise one eyebrow. This may have been merely a flippant comment to describe his own bafflement with the case by Turnbull, but this statement would seed into a long-running story helped along by a truly bizarre event and very strange coincidence that was to take place six months after the closure of the mysterious case of Zygmunt Adamski. As time passed, the mysterious death of Zygmunt Adamski faded away into the background and everyday normalcy took over once again for the police in Yorkshire. PC Alan Godfrey moved on from the investigation and went back to his regular duties, keeping the peace and working his beat around the Yorkshire moors. That was until November, as winter rolled in and the nights drew longer in the valley. On the night of November 28th, 1980, P.C. Alan Godfrey was driving his beat after pulling the night shift. It had been a hectic night after the station had received several calls concerning an escaped herd of cows roaming around Todd Morden and the surrounding area. It had all been something of a wild goose chase. As each new call came in and P.C. Godfrey drove to the scene, the cows were nowhere to be found. By 5am and nearing the end of his shift, Alan was once again driving over to a local estate to check on a fresh report concerning the elusive herd. As he drove along the Burnley Road, a country A road that cuts through the valley from Todd Morden to central Burnley, he found himself having to abruptly stop his vehicle. Up ahead, sitting beside a local park on the northern border of Todd Morden, he saw a large object covering the road. At first he thought it may have been a bus, but as he crept his car nearer, He discovered it was something altogether more strange. The large object was just hanging there in the air, only about 5 feet off the road surface. A diamond-shaped object, about 20 feet wide and 14 feet in height, and what appeared to be a row of dark panelling on the upper top third of it. He pulled his car over and tried to contact the station on his police radio. After getting only static as a reply, He tried his personal radio, but once again, nothing but static filled the car's interior. This in itself was not altogether unusual, as driving through the valley, it was common to meet radio black spots, and so PC Godfrey did the only thing he could think of doing as an officer of the law. He stepped out of his vehicle, he pulled out his notepad and pencil, and he began to draw the object he saw as it floated noiselessly above the road surface, whipping up leaves around it in a silent vortex. All the litter and twigs on the road ahead of me were blowing like a whirlwind. The swirling was very unusual. Higher up the trees, nothing was moving, but lower down on the trees and bushes and the road, all this stuff was moving. As he continued to sketch out the object in the road, a blinding flash of white light filled his vision, and the next thing PC Alan Godfrey could remember, he was continuing to drive down the Burnley Road, 20 feet past where he had stopped to see the object that was now Nowhere to be seen. Alan turned his patrol car around and headed back to town where he collected a colleague who was on foot patrol in the town centre. Together they drove back to the scene and once again they found nothing unusual in the road. In the park besides the road, however, were the elusive herd of cows. They were now standing in the middle of the rugby pitch in the park. PC Godfrey later remarked, You don't expect to see anything like that. You see some weird things in Todd Morden, but nothing like that. After returning to the station in writing up the report on the missing cows, PC Godfrey contacted the farmer responsible for the herd. He clocked off at 6am and finally returned home after what had been a long and very strange night on the beat. The next night he returned to work and found his story from the night before had circulated around the station, leading to Alan taking a fair ribbing from his colleagues. As the days passed, the story was retold and the jokes continued, and Alan, for the most part, put it to the back of his mind and continued on with his role as local police officer. The following week, however, much to Alan's surprise, he found his story there on the front page of the local newspaper. Apparently, one of his colleagues, a policeman working the day shift, had seen fit to fill the local press in on the strange event during their routine morning call to the station. To collect a rundown on any events from the previous night. The story of what was now an official UFO sighting in the eyes of the press, and was also now in the public domain, was aired with much detail for all of Yorkshire to read. Whilst many found the story as light amusement on a slow news day, there were some that took it more seriously. As it turned out, three other officers working on the moors that night searching for a stolen motorbike witnessed a zigzagging object in the sky around the same time as well as two traffic police officers from the Greater Manchester Police and several locals who also claimed to have seen an unidentifiable object in the sky. Despite these apparent confirmations, the story continued to find itself to be the butt of many a good-natured joke until eventually it slipped from current affairs into the background. Eventually it existed solely as a running joke in the local law. It would be another year before the press took any more interest in the story, But this time, it was to be national, more than fleeting, and would make logical leaps and tie knots on a far greater scale. One year later, a man named Norman Collinson, the chief inspector of the fraud squad for the Greater Manchester Police, contacted PC Alan Godfrey. He had heard a story from a member of his staff concerning strange lights in the sky, and when he questioned the man concerning what he had seen, investigations eventually led to Alan's sighting. Collinson contacted Alan at Todd Morden station, and after confessing a personal interest in UFO sightings, he arranged a meeting to question him on the details of what he had seen on that night in November of 1980. What was probably one of the strangest police interviews Alan Godfrey had ever been a part of took place in his own home, when Chief Inspector Collinson showed up on the date previously set between the pair, alongside a solicitor named Harry Harris and Mike Sachs, another man who had also professed to have seen strange lights in the sky, two miles outside of Tob Morden. The entire affair was videotaped, and Alan walked the trio through his encounter step by step. Seemingly impressed by what they had heard, and after piecing together a timeline and finding what they thought might be around twenty to thirty minutes of missing time, the inspector then suggested to Alan he should undergo a series of regression hypnosis sessions to see what more he could recall that they suspected could have been lost to conscious memory. Initially, Alan wasn't overly keen on the idea, dismissing hypnosis as stage tricks, but after much reassurance from Collinson, he agreed to participate. The sessions took place under supervision of two psychiatrists, a Professor Blair, Professor of Psychiatry at Manchester University, and the other, Dr. Joseph Jaffe, a Manchester-based psychiatrist who had cooperated in cases in conjunction with the city police on several occasions in the past. From the outset, neither psychiatrist was made aware of the exact manner of the encounter Alan had had on the Burnley Road, only a cold brief that something had happened one year previous that had caused blocked memories. After each session, Alan found himself plagued with nightmares. After three sessions spanning several months, however, The police superintendent in charge of Alan had been made aware of what was happening at the sessions, and he saw fit to put a halt to the whole operation. It turned out the story that Alan had for the psychiatrists was quite a tale. Alan recounted the story upon his approach to the object in the road. It's a bus, he said, before correcting himself. No, it's not a bus. He then goes on to describe a period of time when, after the flash of light, he was floating in a room alongside a tall guy in a long white robe and skull cap. He goes on. I then mentioned these little, I called them robots. There were about eight of them, three foot high. I don't like them. For some reason they frightened me. The tall guy I called Joseph. Apparently they were doing some kind of examination on me. They attached something to my left leg and my right wrist. There was a dog there too. While Alan first recalled as little robots, he later detailed as small creatures about the size of five-year-olds with heads shaped like a lamp. All of this information came as quite a surprise to Alan. His story was quite shocking as he could not recall any of it consciously, and it wasn't only Alan that found it shocking. Through local ufologists, the story spread, eventually hitting the press. After the press got hold of the story, They took it upon themselves to get busy making links, and the coroner's casual remarks following the inquest from the Zygmunt Adamski case now came back to the fore. As we previously heard, Coroner Turnbull had made a passing comment in his statement to describe his lack of understanding for the whole affair. If I was told a UFO took the man up and dropped him on the coal pile, he'd said, I would only raise one eyebrow. And the press? Well, they now ran with the concept. On Sunday, the 27th of September 1981, the Sunday Mirror printed the front page with a large headline that read Amazing UFO Death Riddle. A man's mysterious death is at the centre of one of the biggest UFO riddles in years. The piece was filled with quotes from the coroner explaining how confusing the Adamski case was, and it even quoted him as saying, I do admit, that the failure of forensic scientists to identify the corrosive substance which caused Adamski's burns lends weight to the UFO theory. In October 1981, the Weekly World News, a national paper mainly concerned with esoteric, strange and often quite fictional stories, printed the headline, Death Strikes from Space, and all at once, the mysterious case of Sigmund Adamski and the strange events of the night in November, six months later, became forever linked via the presence of PC Alan Godfrey. The attention that all of this drew towards Alan was not entirely welcome. Alan found his superiors putting severe pressure upon him to not speak any more of the incident. Cases which could only be described as bullying and efforts to enforce unwelcome transfers continued for some four years, until eventually, after a violent physical assault by a group of drunks during a routine foot patrol left him hospitalised, Alan was forced to leave his position on the police force. With his forced retirement, the case of Sigmund Adamski and the events that happened to Alan in November fell to ufologists to investigate and ruminate upon theories. In the past 30 years, there have been several extended efforts by ufologists to get to the bottom of the events of both Sigmund Adamski and Alan Godfrey's encounter on the Burnley Road. In 2005, John Hansen and David Sankey, members of Bufora, the British UFO Research Association, undertook an investigation mainly focused on the case of Zygmunt Adamski. The pair uncovered some interesting details concerning Adamski's family affairs. They claimed that Zygmunt was, contrary to popular belief, not as thrilled to be as involved in the wedding as most assumed. They interviewed Adamski's family and uncovered the reason why Zygmunt Adamski's cousin and her son were staying with Zygmunt and his wife, LaCardia. It was a complicated feud that was due in part to the wedding and that it had eventually led to a restraining order being taken out upon the cousin's husband. Many in the family believed that Zygmunt had been kidnapped by the husband. Hansen and Sankey then go on to hypothesise that Zygmunt had been kidnapped, held in a shed, tried to escape causing battery acid to spill on him and this caused the burn marks. They also found out that Zygmunt was undergoing moxibustion an alternative form of therapy whereby cotton balls are lit on fire and touched on the skin, and they propose that these two may have been the origin for the burn marks. This theory seems to take a few great leaps in logic, however. Firstly, that everyone keeps battery acid in their sheds, and that Zygmunt was kept in a shed in the first place, and secondly, that practitioners of alternative therapies are untrained, unpracticed masochists. A further theory proposed by many rests on the fact that Zygmunt had recently been rejected for early retirement, and suggests that with his family troubles and the disappointment in having his retirement denied, he was driven to suicide. This again appears to take liberties with the facts, however. Firstly, why would he kill himself over the disappointment of not being able to retire early, when the very point of this application in the first place was to allow him more time to look after his wife, who suffered multiple sclerosis? As a dead man, this would only achieve an assurance he would never look after her again. Secondly, everyone spoke of him as happy and in good spirits. We are of course then left with the last main theory that many ufologists and UFO enthusiasts believe and has seemingly become law, that he was abducted by aliens and his body was dumped on top of the coal. The main sticking points of this theory are that the coal pile was difficult to climb that it was undisturbed and, of course, the coroner's comments, though there is little else. So what of the events that later unfolded for Alan Godfrey? In 2017, ufologist Russ Callahan investigated the case and found that a prefabricated, prototyped Futura home, a round, dome-shaped mobile home encircled with dark windows, was in fact a resident feature of the area. It was also driven around on the back of a truck. Callahan believes that the home matched Alan's description, and also that if it had been on the back of a lorry, it may have appeared to have been floating if seen from a distance. The home does appear to match Alan Godfrey's drawings, however, Alan has adamantly denounced the idea, stating, I do not know what happened to me, and I have never pretended that I do. I know what I saw though, and that was none of the things that some people have tried to say that it was such as a bus or a vision of a futuristic prototype house that was made locally. Neither of them can fly. As for his memories of abduction uncovered by hypnotic regression, Alan has always maintained that he is unsure of the truth. He himself fully admits that between his sighting and the hypnosis sessions, he had taken an interest in UFOs and begun reading books on abductions. He has also maintained that outside of the roadside encounter, he has no idea of what happened on that night nor does he know of any definitive truth on the matter. One final, curious item of note is the lockdown of any official files relating to both Sigmund Adamski and Alan Godfrey, all of which have been made unavailable. Despite numerous attempts from investigators and from Alan Godfrey himself to gain access for research purposes, they have never been granted permission, citing the documents as classified. The case of Sigmund Adamski remains a deep mystery. Whether or not one considers it to be an alien abduction, it remains bizarre from either angle. If he wasn't simply dropped onto the coal pile via an alien spacecraft, how did he find his way to Tob Morden, over 20 miles from the shops he was last seen at buying groceries? And why would he go in the first place with no previous links? Where had he been for five days? And why did he appear to be in relatively good health, well-fed, clean, shaven, but with no wallet, shirt or watch? And what were the burn marks on his head, shoulders and neck? Finally, what was the unidentified gel taken from the burns? In the case of Alan Godfrey, what did he see on the night in November? And how much of his entire story, inclusive of the tales he wove whilst undergoing hypnotic regression, are true? The Yorkshire Ripper may have been terrorising the locals in 1980, but these two stories remain as two of the more perplexing cases of the time, bubbling just below the surface, helping to foster a strange atmosphere across the moors that winter, until eventually they would fall away into obscure local history. A Tale of Two halves, Indeed there's a lot to look at here and certainly quite a lot of questions with this one.
1: And we're going to go ahead and do just that after this short break. Forbidden history, grizzly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Havy. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
0: As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible.com. As an affiliate, Audible has given us the chance to offer our listeners a 30-day free trial and that includes an audiobook of your choice. I've actually been a member of Audible myself off and on for over a year or so now, so I'm pretty happy to advertise the service. For those that don't know it, Audible's an audiobook subscription service that gives you one credit for every month you're a member. You then go ahead and you spend your credit on any book that you like, and if you decide to quit your membership or put it on hold, you keep all of your old audiobooks. With our link, audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories, You can sign up for a free month, and that includes a free audiobook of your choice at the same time. If you don't think it's for you at the end of the month, you can cancel your subscription before the 30 days are up, and you've lost nothing, you've gained an audiobook, and you've helped to support the show. So as I mentioned, I'm a member of Audible myself, and this month I've been listening to No Such Thing As Society, a history of Britain in the 1980s, which is pretty awesome. I was born in 81, so it's pretty interesting for me to go back and read sort of in-depth social and cultural history of the time that I grew up in. Um, I usually end up with more books than I do time, so in my backlog I've also got the history of the Templars, which is something I've always heard about but never read about, so again I'm pretty interested to listen to that one. There's more than just history on Audible though, and there's over 40 hours of the complete Sherlock Holmes read by Stephen Fry, and that's all just one book, and I'd give that as an example of something which i definitely recommend they got desktop, Android and iOS apps, and they all sync up. And they also give you hassle-free returns if you find you've spent your credit on a duffer, which is something that I did when I found that I'd spent my credit on a German version of The Lost World. So they took it straight back, and I got my credit back, and everything was good. So if you think that sounds like it might tickle your fancy, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Ads are a pain in the butt right, so do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with daily access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show, and by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. Welcome back. So, first of all, I think we should go ahead and say that Obviously, something strange happened to Zygmunt Adamski, or something not altogether usual. But it more than likely wasn't aliens. And if we say this, then we can pretty much unlink the two cases, and we can deal with them separately. Because whenever you search for Zygmunt Adamski, inevitably you come up with stories of Alan Godfrey at the same time. And and vice versa, when you search for stories of Alan Godfrey, you get stories of Zygmunt Adamski. The two cases are sort of linked wherever you try to find information about one or the other. But if you think about it, the link is fairly tenuous. So even if you accept the UFO angle in the Zygmunt Adamski case, that there really was an alien link between the two cases... Why? Why was it that Alan Godfrey was the only one affected and no one else? You know, what about Malcolm Hagley, who was with him when he found the body? There was a series of UFO abductions in the area that were sort of linked in this way. The chances are there would be more than one policeman who would have been involved in it all. Therefore, if even if we are to say that these were both alien cases, eight cases of alien abductions. Wouldn't it just be a coincidence that Alan had an experience after he found Zygmunt's body? So really, yeah, so they're they're kind of tenuous link. And it just sort of adds a layer of confusion and conspiracy that just isn't really necessary. So if we unlink the two cases, it makes it much simpler. So I'm going to talk about it like that and treat it as if they're two completely separate cases. So let's get into... Zygmunt Adamski first research in Zygmunt Adamski was a nightmare like essentially there's very little known about him and I would probably guess that that's to do with the time period Um, he came from Eastern European country in 1945 The chances are records before that uh, were either destroyed or just obfuscated you would have to guess that he came. Obviously, he came over in quite a period of turmoil. So, records of him before he came to England are, are pretty well before he died. Really, even when he was in England, because he he lived such a normal life, they're pretty much non-existent. We know very little about him, um, which makes the whole thing difficult. But to talk about the actual case, so the first thing to sort of mention is that this pile of coal that he was found on, it's, it's really often described whenever you read stories on the internet, and people are like write-ups of it on the internet and things like that. They talk about it as a pile of coal. Yeah, a 12-foot pile of coal. And, you know, you, you immediately imagine that as, well, a 12-foot pile of coal, right? Not anything too challenging. But actually, if you listen to Alan Godfrey describe the yard, it wasn't like a little coal mound that you could climb up it was an industrial yard and the and the coal was kind of surrounded by sleepers and industrial machinery and all sorts and he goes to great efforts to explain how difficult this this positioning of the body actually was like he says on several occasions he can't imagine anyone climbing up there with a body it, and he he sort of goes on to say how difficult it was for him to climb up there by himself. So the pile of coal is not a simple pile of coal, which a lot of people, when they say do like um, write-ups or podcasts or whatever about this case, they, they, they generally tend to call it a pile of coal, which is what I did as well. But I think you need to kind of hammer it home that it was a bit more than that. It wasn't just simply this little mound of coal that anyone could climb up. But having said that, Sigmund Adamski, during the autopsy, was found to have scratches on his hands and knees. So what are the chances that he got that, climbing up to the top of the pile of coal? I wonder why that's overlooked, because to me, when I read the autopsy results report, I just felt like, well, doesn't that explain it? But I suppose in a way it doesn't, because his clothes weren't dirty, and and you would get dirty climbing up a coal. Funnily enough, like I'm going to show my age, but I remember the days of, you know, having coal yards and, and getting coal delivered to your house to put in your fire. Um, you know, in my back garden, we used to have a coal bunker and that stuff was filthy. Like it was really hard not to get dirty if you touched it. So I suppose that is weird. Like he got those cuts on his hands and knees and say so the first thing you think is, well, he got that from climbing the car a pile of coal. And you think, well, you know, but they said it was undisturbed and he wasn't dirty. And you think, well, you know, would he have been? But I think he would have been. I, I genuinely think if he'd have climbed it himself, he probably would have been absolutely filthy. Because it was quite hard not to be. I'm not sure about that. That's a strange one. There's, there's, there is a theory that says that basically he was sort of wandering delirious. And he climbed a pile of coal, suffered a heart attack as he was climbing it and sort of killed over and died at the top. And essentially, if he was wandering delirious, he was kind of looking, trying to get like a vantage point so he could see where he was. Which, I mean, that theory just doesn't make sense to me because if he was delirious, why would he have suddenly come up with the logic To climb a pile of coal. To like essentially navigate his position. That would seem far too logical for someone who was delirious for a start. But yeah obviously his clothes being clean. That wouldn't have worked either. If he'd have climbed a pile of coal and, and, and it would have been enough of a scrabble. For him to injure his hands and his knees. Surely he would have been dirty for a start. And secondly the cold been disturbed or showed signs of disturbance from that level of force that it takes to cut your hands and knees climbing something but he had none of that and not only that but the, I mean that whole theory is kind of gets shot out of the water when you know no hospitals were treated anyone for any head injuries that matched his description they, they did all that they searched all that because you know it could have been someone who perhaps had a head injury and lost their memory but he was not treated at the hospital, and 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 besides, also, he would have needed somewhere to stay because he was well fed and cleaned and shaven. So even if he'd have hit his head, he, he would have been staying somewhere. So where was that? You know, the the whole theory of being him being delirious. That's why I didn't put it in the podcast because, I mean, I had to put. But to be honest, none of the theories make sense. But this one really didn't make any sense to me. Um, it it, it stumbles on just about every single block. You know, that it comes across. I don't think he climbed up to the coal by himself. I I think that's, I don't think that makes sense. Not only that, but it does sound like his clothes were put on by someone else after he was dead. So that that sort of goes against it as well. I think the chances are he was dumped there because part of the delirious thing is with it being 20 miles away and with the coal, the colliery being next to the train station. Well, the part of this delirious theory is that he caught the train, got off the train and wandered into the coal yard. But A, that's not possible because it's next to the station. But to actually get in it, you have to sort of walk around and go down a long pathway. So that it's it's not a simple matter of just popping over from the train station. I do think he was probably dumped on the coal pile. And, and people say, well, the yard was... Yeah, you know, why would he have been dumped in the yard? And one of the things I heard Alan Godfrey say in an interview was that, oh, you know, why would anyone go there? This is a place where no one goes. Even most people in Todd Morton had not been to this coal yard. So why would someone go and dump the body there? Well, to me, if you were going to dump the body somewhere, you wouldn't, you wouldn't dump it in the middle of the high street. You'd dump it somewhere where people didn't intend to go you know, somewhere isolated. So it does actually make sense from that perspective. But it doesn't make sense that they dumped him on top of this big pile. Why would you go out of your way to dump him up there where chances are you know he'd be found because obviously if there's a pile of coal in a coal yard, there's going to be people people collecting that coal. So he was going to be found. It wasn't like he was dumping him out of the way, really. Whoever dumped him almost seems to have gone out of their way to make life difficult for themselves. For no reason. Which is very strange. So the family. They said it was a kidnapping. And they seemed quite adamant. But that seems like quite an extreme jump. Basically they had this falling out with this family member. And they believed that he was kidnapped by this family member. But I mean that seems like an extreme jump. I mean going from a falling out to a kidnapping. And and besides that the police didn't seem to think so either. The police at the time. They said they didn't have any reason to suspect the family, or any member of the family. So that seems strange. But this this information comes from and Sankey, who interviewed family members. And they're the ones that came out with the information about the family feud and the restraining order, and the idea that he was kidnapped. But these Hansen and Sankey, I mean, they came out with some real trash. Where did they get the idea that he was kidnapped and kept in a shed? I mean, why a shed? Where did they get that from? They just pulled that one out of their arse. Like, that seems very strange. And, and then the battery acid. I've had loads of sheds in my life, growing up as a kid and as an adult, and I've never once had battery acid in the shed. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone that has battery acid in their shed. I mean, who has battery acid? And why would you have it in a shed? Again, quite an extreme jump to me. And I, I think, I'm not sure quite how they got to that conclusion. Other than, oh, he had chemical burns. So how can we shoehorn a theory into that? Oh, he was kidnapped and put in a shed. And the shed had battery acid. And, and I mean, who came up with Hanson sitting there going, ah, oh, perhaps he was kept in a shed. And perhaps the shed had battery acid. And then Sankey was like, You've got it, Hanson. You've nailed it. It must be that. It, it, it seems like an extreme jump in logic to me. And then, I mean, they go on then to say that the burns were possibly, if they weren't from battery acid, then okay, they were possibly from his alternative therapy, this moxibustion thing. And a lot of skeptics, they, they love this. They, and, and I say, when I say skeptics, I don't mean skeptics. I mean like, self-identifying sceptics as in like sort of obnoxious morons Um that they, they point out this therapy and go oh yeah so, so that makes all the sense in the world now like you know the, these burn marks they must have definitely came from his therapist well saying that is surely like saying I went to acupuncture and now I've only got one arm because he sliced the other one off I mean you go to an all- Alternative therapist, it doesn't burn your head, neck and shoulders to the point where you've got, you know, where you've got patches of hair missing because they've set fire to your head, essentially. Pretty sure you don't go to a therapist for that. You know, if this mock Sebastian was setting fire to cotton balls and put, placing them on the skin, I would hazard a guess that it was fairly controlled. It just doesn't make sense. Alternative therapist, surely not this much of a cowboy that they would have burnt him m- more than once it would be a mistake he wouldn't burn your head so you lost all your hair around your crown and then all your neck and then all your back no I'm sorry Hanson and Sankey you're mental that's all I've got to say about that so another thing that the sort of say like kind of quote-unquote skeptics They like to point to the gel, and you know, if you look this up online, you'll you'll read a lot that that sceptics will say, oh this gel is unidentified, but you know, it's just a bunch of police looking at it, what do they know? Well, it's just plain wrong, either they're being disingenuous, or they don't know the facts, because that's just plain wrong, it it wasn't just a bunch of police who didn't recognise it, the guy who, the pathologist didn't recognise it and he sent it to the home office laboratory to test it for chemical analysis. And that then it came back two weeks later, the results came back two weeks later saying that it was unidentified. So, so that's weird. You know, if the gel was unidentified, that sounds strange. I would like to know what that actually means. When you sort of find the primary sources for this, it just says it's unidentified. It doesn't say doesn't really break it down any further than that. I mean, it is, I suppose it means it was unidentified, but that seems impossible, doesn't it? It's very strange, whatever it is. Yeah, so the, so the other theory is that he, he killed himself because he was, you know, annoyed that he didn't get early retirement and he stressed about his family situation with this feud that was going on. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Like I said in the podcast again, if he applied for early retirement to look after his wife, then why on earth would he kill himself because he didn't get early retirement? That, that's absolute moronic levels of deduction there. Like thats It just doesn't make any sense. I really want to look after my wife, so I'm going to apply for early retirement. I didn't get early retirement, therefore I'm going to kill myself. I mean, talk about chopping your nose off to spite your own face. That that just makes no sense. So I think that is absolute rubbish, that theory, that he killed himself. And and not only that, but everyone around him said that he was happy and, you know, was fine, essentially, like, like mentally sound. So, yeah, I think that's nonsense. So then we got kind of the quotes from the coroner, Turnbull. What was he playing at? Oh, he didn't understand it, but he really went all in on that, you know, telling the newspapers. Well, he said, I do admit the failure of forensic scientists to identify the crisis of substance. Um, it lends weight to the UFO theory. You know, he went all in there, and I wonder why he did that. But I also wonder where that sentence came from, like, in con- or not where it came from, because obviously it came from him whilst he was interviewed by the press. But I wonder... It sounds to me like it was clipped from a much larger statement, and I would love to see it in its original context. Because I say, the, well, the full quote I mean, is: "I do admit that the failure of forensic scientists to identify the corrosive substance which caused Damsky's burns lends weight to the UFO theory," and that's where the quote stops. But you know, there, that leaves so much room there for him to have said "but" or "however." Da 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 You know, the, the newspaper I doubt it was the Sunday Mirror. And they were kind of, you know, the chances are that they didn't mistreat that quote is relatively slim, to be honest. I and mean, it's not a rag, but at the same time, it is a tabloid. And it was a Sunday. Like the Sunday edition tends to have a lot of guff in it traditionally. So you'd have to sort of say that you know it's it's not it's not total guff, is it? The National Enquirer in America—that's that—that's the paper that's total guff. It's it's not as bad as that, and it's not as bad as some of the guff in 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 this country, like the Daily Star, for example. is, is absolute guff. Um, so it's not it's not quite as bad as that, but it's but it is a tabloid at the end of the day. So yeah, you would. I wonder if either the coroner was really enjoying this, like hamming it up, or how the, how his quotes were mistreated, one or the other. But yeah, so that's, that's that's kind of Zygmunt Adamski. And you have to say that if you write off alien theory, because I think we can do that, or... You know, let's do it as an exercise, even if you don't think we can do that. Let's just do it as a quick thought exercise. So let's write off the alien theory. What was it? You know, where where had he been for five days? Because he'd eaten well. He was clean. He was clean shaven. Or not clean shaven, but only one day's beard growth, And he was 20 miles away from where he was last seen with no transport. Where had he been? What was he doing there? None of it makes sense. And not one of the theories makes sense either. And and what's worse is is it's literally like like that headline said, you know, during the inquest, five lost days, really is like quite a significant amount of time that's just completely lost. And without any knowledge from those five days, I think we've just got no concept of what happened to him. There's just not enough there. I mean, his wallet and his watch was missing so that leads you to believe that he was possibly mugged and killed and dumped there if someone sort of said that to me I would I would sort of accept it but that doesn't answer all the questions Well, where had he been for the five days and why was if someone had mugged him and still stolen his stuff and then killed him why, why was he in such good condition like physically it doesn't make sense right so I find that very peculiar on the other hand, if we're then, as again, as a, as a second sort of thought exercise, if we're to say, okay, well, was UFOs then, that doesn't make sense either. That obviously, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> because, you know, not that I don't believe in aliens, but whether or not I believe that they're visiting Earth and kidnapping people and dumping them on piles of coal is a different question entirely where would they have picked him up and and if they did it would would have probably been in the middle of the day because he went missing in the daytime and he was shopping so i think i believe he only went to like a local shop but that still means that if it was an alien theory and this is conveniently something that's never really brought up when people talk about the alien theory is how did he get abducted in the first place and obviously you can see why it's conveniently kind of overlooked. Because, okay, let's say it was aliens. That would mean he was taken from a kind of suburb of quite a large city in the middle of the day on a weekend where you would assume there was a fair few people around. And no one witnessed that. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So really, you know, it doesn't matter which angle... You look at this from, nothing seems to make sense. So we'll move on from that and look at Alan Godfrey. Now Alan Godfrey is an interesting one for me because I read quite a bit of his stuff and I listened to him give a couple of interviews. And he's a really down-to-earth guy. He sounds like an honest, down-to-earth, like absolutely straight as an arrow guy. He's not media trained, he's not media savvy, he's not trying to sell a house or make a buck. Like, like you see so many of these alien abduction cases and they're very slick people and they're very, say, well media trained and they're very good at hawking what they're hawking, you know, like, oh, I've got this ranch and I'm selling it. Surprise, surprise, it's got aliens on it. Yeah, okay. Alright then. You know, it's, it, it makes them very hard to believe. And they're so slick at answering questions that, you know, they, they answer questions like politicians. And you just think, oh, I can't believe a word you're saying. You've made a lifetime out of, you know, a lifetime living out of whatever it is you're hawking. And you're, you're very well trained and very good at it by this point. Whereas this guy he's not. He's very like, he's, he's just a normal guy. And and I, I, that leads on to something else that I'll come back to. But he's just a normal guy. So yeah, I I I like him. Like listening to him, I liked him. I thought he he sounded like a genuine guy. He always sort of says that he doesn't really know the truth. You can tell he holds quite a sceptical eye upon his hypnosis, which is good, because again, I'm going to come back to that. But he always says, he definitely knows, you know, he knows what he saw on the roadside. He saw an alien craft on the by the roadside, but anything after that, with the abduction and all the rest, he doesn't really, you know, he's pretty straight with it. He says, you know, I, I don't know what I saw there. So, I like that about him, but he lets me d- a few places, <laughs> you know, he... he, he for starters, I'm in quite a unique position here. And I think possibly in a unique position, not unique, but uncommon position in that I've actually had regression hypnosis therapy several times. Um, not for alien abduction. <laughs> I had it for trying to cure a fairly severe, severe phobia. So I know what it's like. And. I'll tell you straight that it's not at all like how it's pictured when you see it in films and it's often depicted in a way that, that that is total bull. Um, you're very, when you go under, you're, you're quite lucid. You, you fully know where you are. You know what you're saying. You, know, you have quite an incredibly vivid imagination to the point where, you know, your imagination is really popping and you can, Really imagine what the therapist is or the psychiatrist is is putting into your head is very bright coloured imagination. It's very vivid, and you can almost like it's almost physical that you get physical. Sim- you couldn't get physical symptoms from what they're telling you, for example. And I'll give you an example of that was um, one way that I went to a, th- um, a therapist once, and she said, "You know, try to imagine." What you feel like when you have this phobia. And then the next thing she moved on to was basically put yourself in a situation where everything's wonderful. You know, I think she she used the um, concept of a um, theme park. And she said, you know, you're in a theme park and you're having a wonderful time. And everyone around, all your friends are around you. And, you know, you're just having a great day, basically. The sun's out. Yeah, everything's brilliant. And, 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 and essentially she, she made me feel like that kind of, like even to be honest, I don't like theme parks, but she made me feel like this was really a great day. You know, I was really having a great time in this theme park. And then she said, basically you take this feeling with you when you now start to think about what you're having a phobia for and try to concentrate on it. And I think the idea that she was getting at was, you know, to try to transplant one feeling or with an, with another, or or override the feeling, if you like, um, so that I could realise that it, it doesn't. The phobia is sort of extreme and, and and not necessary. Anyway, I'm kind of getting off the point. The, but 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 just from what I've explained there, you 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 can see that um hypnotic regression is. Is not a state where you forget. You know what's going on. You know what you're saying. And you you are fully lucid. You can move if you want to. You can open your eyes if you want to. There was a time where I did open my eyes and I looked around the room. And then as soon as I closed them again, I was back to where I was. It's not as if you just kind of zombie out. Like they sort of depict it in kind of media and stuff like that. And Alan says, to get to the point, Alan Godfrey says he doesn't remember what he said during hypnotic regression. And that made me feel sad, because I know for a fact, to say having undergone hypnotic regression myself, I know for a fact that you'd remember. And the fact that I've just described all that stuff to you, is proof right there that I remember it quite vividly. Say, like, your, your imagination is incredibly vivid. Because I guess, because you're in this relaxed state, it's almost like a waking dream, right? Because everything seems really real. And another thing with hypnotic regression is it really doesn't take much to trigger your imagination. And there was a point where I was trying to recall a memory. And so the therapist was saying to me, okay, he was, this was a different therapist. And he was trying to get to the root of this phobia and he was saying you know go back and tell me some stories that would make you feel sort of phobic and uh or where you think it might have come from and, and you know go back and then tell me what you can remember and i was coming up with stories not stories i was coming up with real experiences from my younger life um and he was saying to me no it's not that it's not that it would be more than that sort of thing it wasn't these these are these are these experiences that I was telling him they weren't enough for him he was saying no, that it's, it's got to be something more than that um and at the, eventually he actually said to me you know what just make something up just make up a situation that would make you feel phobic but put yourself in it as if you were a young young child which is very telling because actually what I kind of gathered from that was you know it goes to show how false our memories are because Actually, a made-up memory that I was just made up on the spot is as valid in your mind as a real memory. Because essentially they're both sort of fallible and not real. Because your memories are essentially, you you, you know very little about your memories. Memories are often sort of very small fragments and the rest is basically filled in because you don't have the capacity to remember what you think you remember. So what you think you remember is often very small fragments and then you fill in the gaps if you like. So the whole point of me going into this is that it's very easy to implant or, or sort of suggest new memories and Alan Godfrey, he admitted freely that he had taken an interest in UFOs ever since he'd seen this alien spacecraft on the road. And he'd been reading a lot of books about it, he'd been reading a lot of abduction cases about it. And I believe that if, when he did his hypnosis, firstly, I believe, he says he doesn't remember anything that he said, well, I don't believe that. That makes me feel sad. I think he's hamming that up. Because, say, you do remember, I've done it like several times and I remember every single time and secondly it's it's really very easy to implant memories and such into things and when you look at his abduction thing he said his his abduction story he said there was a man called Joseph who was wearing a skull cap and robes that sounds like a religious figure to me might just be the name but skull cap and robes also is that not quite a religious, like a biblical figure. It comes across as something like that. Um, Little robots that later became men with lamp-like heads. That sounds like possibly, it's very vague. So perhaps he got that from the books that he was reading. And then there was a dog there. Why would there have been a dog there? It doesn't make sense. It all sounds to me like a kind of mishmash of a dream. A bit like in an incredibly vivid imagination that you would get whilst you were under hypnosis to me so I think his whole hypnosis I think you can write all of that off I think that's all junk I don't, I don't think he's a liar I don't think he's making stuff up doesn't seem to have particularly profited from this situation so I don't think he's you know like a con man I just and and didn't say like, he freely admits he doesn't know the truth of it as well and that's very telling to me I think he says that in a way because he's almost say he sounds like a sort of the earth guy and I don't think he likes the idea of lying but I think he recognizes that without his story of hypnotic regression and what he came out with there's not much to go on there so I think he feels like his story needs it and that's why he Maintains the story, but at the same time, he says, I don't know if it's true or not. I think there's more to it than that. I think what he's essentially saying when he says, I don't know if it's true or not, I think he's basically saying this isn't true. But he obviously doesn't want to say that. So, it, but it's like he justifying it to himself almost like, oh, if I say it's he's not sure, like if I say I'm not sure if it's true or not, then I'm technically not lying. Then that's what I feel about it, and and I, and what brings me to say a lot of this stuff about him. Say he's a really nice guy, but I heard him do an interview, and uh, he's not media trained. He's not media savvy at, at all in the least, which is great and it's quite refreshing to be honest. But in the interview, he said, um, "I'm sort of paraphrasing," but he said, "I went and gave a talk." And we raise quite a lot of money for charity. And I thought, well, this is quite good, isn't it? You know, we can make some money here, and, and you know, for for charity, and something good can come out of something bad. Now, I think that's great intentions, but it also says a lot about why he's keeping it going. I feel like perhaps he's not being entirely truthful with his story, but at the same time. By always saying, oh, I'm not really sure about that. I'm not sure if it's true or not. He's not quite giving himself to it. He's not quite saying, I think he sort of can then feel in himself that he's not trying to hoodwink anyone because he's saying he doesn't know. Makes me wonder. Maybe that's a bit cynical, but that's what I felt. On the other side of things, what about the stuff before that then? Because, say, he, he admits anyway that he doesn't know. If any of that's true, so but what about the actual, you know, the thing he saw in the road? I saw the pictures that he drew, and I'll put them on the Instagram and things like that, so you can see them. And I saw the picture of the future house, which again I'll I'll put up on the Instagram, and it's very damn close. So this was the second in two thousand and five. It was the the second ufologist that we spoke about, and I actually thought his theory of the fact that. If you if you saw this house on the back of a truck in the distance, it might perhaps look like it was hovering five feet off the road because it was on the back of a truck. That sounds plausible to me. That sounds incredibly plausible, in fact. But at the same time, you would think his eyesight would have to be pretty bad to not have seen the truck. And he says straight up, I definitely know what I saw, and it wasn't the house, it wasn't on the back of a truck. And I I tend, I sort of believe him, because he's so believable in every other way. He's done a couple of interviews, and you can find him on the internet. I'll I'll link it in the show notes, in darkhistories.com. So if you go to darkhistories.com and check the the show notes for this episode, I'll link to the interview. But you can listen to him and say he's very honest. And it makes me wonder. I just don't think he doesn't come across like a liar, really. And, he, and he's and he's you know he, he's he's almost like I, I say it how I mean it, and that's I say not only is it really refreshing in that field of yeah you know, when you hear I've had so many because I listen to a lot of podcasts about all this weird sort of stuff, and I've had so many people have, talk about their alien experiences and. They're nearly all just these like highly, not not necessarily media trained, but you know what I mean, that they've, they know exactly how to speak to the media and you just say, oh, come on, just give me someone who's genuine. And this guy really is. He does sound genuine. I'm really torn over it. And I really like the, the theory that it was on the back of a truck, therefore it looked like it was flying. But... What would it have been doing driving around at 5am? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And Alan is dead set that it, he knows what he saw. And what he saw wasn't a house on the back of a truck. So I'm really not sure. I'm really torn. So what have we learned, really? Again, as always, I've come up with a couple of theories and for two different topics. And both of the topics are, I don't know. so I've done pretty well there, as usual. But I'd love to hear your theories about this one, or these two, really, because it's kind of two for one, isn't it? Yeah, in in, in terms of Zygmunt Adamski, I have no idea. As far as Alan Godfrey goes, I think he embellishes a lot, I'll say, especially when it comes to his hypnosis, but he's very believable. So I think we've probably talked for a lot so I'm going to have to be quick here. If you want to talk about any theories, we've got a Discord. Jump over. Come and say hello. Come and talk theories. You can find us on the web. Find it on everything you need to know. All the social media, Discord, everything. Just go to the website, darkhistories.com. If you'd like to support, that'd be amazing. You get loads of free stuff. Go back to the advert if you skipped it and check it out. You get ad-free versions of the show, they come four or five days before everyone else gets them stickers money off of our merchandise store a bunch of stuff and it costs you like one, three or five dollars our tiers are which is, you know it's essentially like buying me a beer every month so, you know if you fancy if you've got some change and you enjoy the show I'd really appreciate that and you get loads of free stuff you can't go wrong do contact me If you feel like you've got anything to say, anything at all, tell me your theories, tell me I'm a knob, do whatever you like. You know, if you do contact me, let me know how you consume the show because the amount of different places and people that listen to the show, it's, it's quite motivational and it's quite inspiring. So yeah, do let me know. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. It's been wonderful. See you in a couple of weeks. Sleep tight.